Hi, and welcome to Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. I'm Jeremy Wartzman, and I'm here with my co-host, Laura Chan Baker. Hello. Hello. Here at Jackie Winter, our roles put us right in the center of the action in between client and creative, so we get to see all sides of the process. Each week, we come together in the Saki Kangaroo Pouch that is our recording studio and dissect three different things we've come across during our recent internet travels. We use these as a jumping off point to look at what's shaping the issues, processes, happenings, and ideas across the creative industries today. This week, we're going through our open tabs and we'll be discussing corporate vegetarianism, the future of retail, and how to build a functional home. Helping us bring some outside perspective today is our special guest, Jana Perkovich. Jana is the editor of Assemble Papers, a Melbourne-based magazine about small footprint living across art, architecture, design, environment, and financial matters, which neatly brings together her background in urbanism and her interest in telling stories through media. She has worked in urban policy in Brussels and placemaking through art in Berlin, and she also works as a researcher in urban design and planning at the University of Melbourne. To make sure both sides of her brain gets used, she also has a side gig as a performing arts critic and dramaturge. Jana writes a long-standing column on theater for The Lifted Brow and co-creates Audio Stage, a podcast of conversations with creatives. Basically, she's amazing. Jana, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming. Hi, thank you. It's so nice to have you here. We have had you for our IRL Open Tabs events, and you've been wonderful, and I was dying to get you into our hotbox to, to record a proper episode with you. Thank you so much. I was just explaining in the office today that I love Open Tabs because it's the best way to meet new people that we would never encounter otherwise. And see super weird things on the internet. <laughs> yeah, people, people live in their own weird enclaves of the internet. You know, we talk, it's and that's the why... the biggest thing I've learned. <laughs> it's, so, it's so interesting, and I find, you know, it's so funny going through these tabs every week sometimes, and I'm always looking at kind of the same things, and that's why, you know, I think that's why the guest format works really well here because, yeah, we're always looking at new things. Laura, how are you going? How are you surviving, you know, our weekend after our... Oh, our... yes. we Jeremy and I, we bunkered down for the week at Jackie Winter Gardens, which, I mean, no complaints. What a beautiful place. I mean, I won't talk too much about how you betrayed me, telling me there was olive oil in the house, but there wasn't. Uh, <laughs> but no, I'm good. I had family Christmas yesterday, so I'm recovering from that. I was actually talking about our water park adventure on Friday. Oh, I mean, yes, yes, that was great. <laughs> we did go to Funfields, a water park for our Melbourne offices Christmas excursion. And yeah, it was really great, but I wasn't prepared. It was so fun. Was I mean, so there was fun. lots of children, but it was really fun. Lots of children. But I, yeah, I, like what I was saying is like there is like I, you know, I'm very active in my sport and there's kind of sporting fit and then there's water park fit. And there are two different oh. kinds of fitness because you really need like you have to go up a lot of stairs. You have to bear your bare feet on the hot, you know, concrete. Then I you have did to walk upstairs. 18,000 for... steps. My new, cool new Apple Watch told me. I did 18,000 steps that day. I went up 46 flights of stairs and I like tripled my move goal. It was pretty, I mean, what a workout. What a workout indeed. Well, let's give our brains a bit of workout here. Totally. As we move into our Another first good segue. Um, Laura, what do you have for us this week? So this is actually a bit of an older article, but I've been wanting to talk about it on the show Ever since it happened, I'd saved it in my pocket and then completely forgot about it. And uh, I've decided it is finally time. So um, it's a piece, well, two pieces I was looking at, one from the New York Times, one from Fast Company. And both of them are about how in uh, mid-July of this year, the enormous co-working company WeWork announced that they were essentially going vegetarian. So they would no longer serve red meat, pork or poultry at company functions, and they wouldn't reimburse employees who wanted to order a, a burger during a lunch meeting or, or any other meat eaten on business trips. And the small sort of self-serve kiosk that they have in some of their work company buildings. They took meat off their menus as well, all in an attempt to become a meat-free organization. So in a memo to employees announcing the new policy, Miguel McKelvey, who is WeWork's co-founder and chief culture officer, said that the decision was driven largely by concerns for the environment and then to a lesser extent, animal welfare as well. So to quote the memo, he says, New research indicates that avoiding meat is one of the biggest things an individual can do to reduce their personal environmental impact, even more than switching to a hybrid car. And he also added that by 2023, they predict that the decision to eliminate meat across the company will prevent 445 million pounds of CO2 emissions, save 16.6 gallons, no, 16.6 billion <laughs> gallons of water, which for the Aussies is about 63 billion litres, and save the lives of more than 15 million animals. And McKelvey said the policy was also aimed at sort of raising consciousness in general among the company's nearly 6,000 employees. So unsurprisingly, the move was met with a, with a pretty fair mix of enthusiastic support and severe criticism. You know, in the red corner, you've got those that applauded the decision as a, as a bold and positive act of corporate social responsibility that they have every right to make. And then in the blue corner, there were those that sort of chastised the company for forcing employees to comply with what they see as the ideological crusade of, of just a small number of people at the top. 
And as Miguel McKelvey sees it, imposing his values on his employees is a natural part of being a corporate leader today. He says, um, companies have greater responsibility to their team members and to the world these days. We're the ones with the power. Large employers are the ones that can move the needle on these issues. And I guess there's no question legally that they do have the right to withhold meat from their employees. WeWork has no obligation to feed its workers, much less sort of offer steaks at every lunch. Uh, And of course, employees are still welcome to bring in any food that they like from home. The rule applies only to food being paid for by WeWork. But there have also been arguments such as from science journalist Erin Bieber uh, that WeWork is just perpetuating the ubiquitous and dangerous myth that individual decisions are more important than the actions of industry. And that was the one that came up a lot. So in a piece written for NBC, Erin criticised WeWork for shifting the focus away from the world's worst carbon emitter, you know, the fossil fuel industry. And she said that animal agriculture represents only 15 to 18% of carbon emissions and therefore shouldn't be the issue that we focus on. And she stated that whilst, you know, caring about the planet, trying to do something about climate change is definitely a notable, a noble cause. With the stakes as high as they are, she said that the accuracy in messaging is vital. Personally, I don't know what you guys think. I think that's a bit of a weird argument because I think, you know, like as if there's only one thing we can do to fight climate change. Like it's like saying we shouldn't try to prevent heart disease because we're trying to cure cancer. Like we can we can do both. And we work are also implementing all sorts of other changes targeted at reducing plastics, going carbon neutral. And just to add, I mean, the World Watch Institute audited that estimate of 15 to 18% a decade ago and they found tons of emitted emissions, including undercounted meth- methane, overlooked land use, uncounted respiration from the 70 billion animals reared for slaughter each year and found that meat's contribution to carbon emissions is likely multiple times higher than that. And even if animal agriculture were only responsible for 15 to 18% of emissions, that's still more than 7 billion tonnes of CO2 each year when, you know, really our emissions need to be zero. But the other issue that Bieber saw was that this stance was kind of about punishment. She argues that the growing focus on individual actions to mitigate climate change implies that each one of us is singularly to blame for what really is the irresponsible activity of industry and government regulations. There are actually environmentally responsible ways to farm meat. And if all farms around the world were to adopt them, the percentage of carbon emitted from farm to toilet could be reduced from 18% to just 10%. Again, I think this is kind of irrelevant because of course we as individuals should take some responsibility. Like, you know, after all, we are the individuals who run profit farm support, engage with those companies. And, you know, even though, yes, there probably does need to be more focus on the emissions resulted from transport, this is an action that WeWork can take that doesn't, I mean, I don't think it does anyway. It doesn't have any significant impacts on employees whilst also doing a heap of good. Then again, I say all of this is someone who eats meat. So <laughs> it's all a bit, it's a bit fuzzy, but I really want to hear from you too, you know, what you think about all of this. Like, do you think that a company has a moral right to dictate these sorts of things for its employees because in recent times other companies around the world in ways sort of large and small have made various decisions to impose corporate values on the personal lives of their employees for example Hobby Lobby refused to pay for birth control for its employees Kosh Industries and Westgate Resorts have sent memos to employees suggesting how they vote for a very short time like like a day because people revolted against the decision IBM banned employees from using ride sharing apps citing sort of safety and liability concerns and then there are several big employers including General Electric, who have successfully paid employees to quit smoking. miracle Grow has a policy of not hiring smokers. And I guess for me, the key difference as I see it uh, between some of these is whether it's a rule that affects only what the employee does on company time and money and rules that affect their personal lives and freedom. So anyway, Jana, let's start with you. What do you think about WeWork's decision and others like it? Like, Where do you draw that line on what sorts of things a company can and can't ask from its employees? So many thoughts. I think first, it's important to say that 15 to 18% is a lot. That's like the whole transportation sector in Australia. So Mm. when you're comparing it to hybrid cars, it's very, very comparable. These are huge numbers. So yeah, environmentally, yeah, it's actually been suggested to us from one of our colleagues at the city of Melbourne that one of the small ways in which Assemble Papers could, uh, you know, live up to its sustainability credentials would be to only have vegetarian catering at Mm. our events. We don't do a ton of events, but it was suggested, you know, that's actually a really nice little way in which you can, you know, reduce your carbon footprint and you're feeding people anyway. Would I force people to not eat meat? You know, like this article, I started off going, hmm, I don't know how I feel about it. And then very quickly got very weird with all these examples of American companies not paying for birth control, I suppose through health insurance, right? And paying their employees to quit smoking. So I very quickly found myself going, oh shit, like, is this what's going on right now? Is this what other companies are doing? Is this the new normal? Like, how do you feel about that? Jeremy, I mean, you're a business owner. You you manage employees. What yeah, do you think? I don't know. I mean, nothing about this kind of seems really kind of radical to me. It's like, I think, especially in larger companies, they the whole point of the CEO as a person at the top is that they bring their values to the whole company. And so I kind of think that, look, maybe in kind of some ways it's a 
being a bit more cynical here, it could be a great move by WeWork to differentiate themselves across the numerous other you know co-working spaces that are out there. It's a very kind of competitive market, and I kind of think, yeah, how do, if you, everyone has a great space with great architects and great locations, how do you kind of differentiate yourself by making yourself a values kind of driven business? And so I kind of think it is a shrewd business move, but one that I can kind of get behind as well. Again, I'm also a carnivore, but. I align myself very, I'm an aspirational vegetarian in vegetarian. some ways. My, my, my children are vegetarian, my partner is vegetarian. So it's definitely kind of something that I think is great. And I kind of think it's those, I think those kind of qualities in terms of, yeah, there are, in terms of just being a compassionate person, being compassionate to other creatures, being compassionate for your environment and being mindful of kind of all those things. Like those are things that are great for business, they're great for the environment, they're great for health. Obviously, I'm, I can't deny that there's going to be areas of the industry that will kind of suffer from this, but this is just kind of where, every, this is the momentum of where energy is going right now. So it's interesting that work actually have a lot of big offices in Texas, and that's where a lot of the... Um, negative response came from because, I mean, it's pretty, I mean, Texas is the home of, of meat <laughs> um, in some senses. And there were there was a lot of backlash in that kind of area. And there was one quote I read that said, like, they should keep it in San Francisco where it belongs, which is, I mean, I, but I guess part of why a company as big as WeWork has made this decision is because they do have the power to influence people who might normally not come across those sorts of ideas and values. This gets into so much deep territory and so many different levels, but I think anytime you you work for someone else, you're always giving up some of your freedom. I mean, if someone says- I know I have. Uh, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, the, I, I think, you know, if you have work hours, you know, that's defining, you know, a place where you have to be at a time and obviously work hours are becoming more kind of flexible as well. So, but yeah. Like one thing I was thinking about was our Friday lunches here at Jackie Winter. So like every Friday- Jeremy, you shout us all to a group lunch. And because I was reading the article and I was thinking, yeah, I completely support WeWork. And then I thought, okay, what if it was me? Because I do eat meat. And, you know, what if our Friday lunches had to be vegetarian because of your beliefs? And I, I figured in the end, like, I'd obviously I'd miss the delicious burgers and pizzas that we often get, but I, I would totally be on board with the move. I think firstly, because it's one lunch out of my week. And also it's a free lunch. So I guess my feeling in the end was like, if Jeremy is paying for it, if my company is paying for it, it's his right or their right to not want to pay for certain types of food. And if I wanted to eat meat on Friday, I could bring something in. I really liked uh, Laszlo Bock from Google who said humans don't like these sort of rules. Humans like nudges. This is actually, I think, very true. It really depends on how you frame this thing. Are you framing it as we're taking your meat away or are you framing it as we're going to shout you beautiful vegetarian food every day that you're working here? One thing that I'm really allergic to is companies using rules to counter their own bad design decisions. Mm. So, you know, when you go to a cafe and it, there's this big sign with an arrow saying, Q here, that's because the cafe has been designed so that everyone thinks that they have to be queuing somewhere else. <laughs> Such a good point. And every time you see a, a massive sign saying, here is where you do something, it just means that the interior designer didn't do their job properly. And a really good example of that is something I've been seeing at train stations around Melbourne, which are these horrible passive aggressive signs saying passengers spread across platforms. Oh, have you seen them? Yeah. Now, in most public transportation systems, there are four entrances and exits to a platform. So one at the top, one at the bottom, and then you can go across to the other platform, top and bottom. And when you do that, people naturally spread across the platform because they haven't all come in through one yeah. little gate, which is what Metro Trains, I think, has. And then they have to counter their own bad design decision with these posters saying, oh, now that we've got you all in through this tiny little door, can you please just spread? <laughs> it's horrible. And it makes people really resentful. I know that I just loiter at the entrance to the station sort of going, I'm not going to spread <laughs> out of spite. <laughs> so is there a bad design decision that you think's happened here? With WeWork? Yeah. I mean, WeWork is massive and they offer so much to their employees. And I get a feeling that they're creating a bit of a whole ecology that might be becoming a little bit oppressive. And when they say, well, now that we have this gigantic system in place, we're going to start telling people what to eat. I think that can come across as a bit obnoxious. Because one of the things I talked about was other companies who in a similar nature, just rather than cutting out meat from things, they made like design efforts to display the vegetarian food more prominently on menus or maybe make that cheaper or whatever it was to sort of nudge people towards it. But again, I think, you know, people then still make it. If the company founders, like they wanted to make actually have a real big impact they probably thought, well, this is the one way we can 
we can truly do that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so interesting. I think there's a, there's a real kind of Americanism at play here as well. And I think what you were saying before really resonated with me. I mean, you know, I followed politics in the states very closely, and I think that's always been something really difficult about the whole healthcare debate, which is once somebody has something, it's really hard to kind of take it away from them. And that's why Republicans have been having a hard time getting rid of the Affordable Care Act because people now already kind of have it, and you can't kind of then kind of take it away. And so that's kind of what I think is also interesting here that you have kind of these communities of freelancers, which is all about kind of freedom, you know, freedom movement, freedom to do anything you want. And I think when you're dealing with a with this kind of workspace that is, you know, there to kind of undermine that, putting anything in there, you know, saying that, okay, now we've given you something and now we're kind of taking away, we're putting kind of a rule there. I can understand why there might be a lot of you know, resistance to that. But at the same time, I don't know. It does. I mean, I, they have I, to be able to make changes if they would. Like, it can't be just like once you've done something, that's it. That's the way you have to continue to do it forever. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I think it's a great thing. And I think especially for in terms of the innovation that's kind of happening in the, the whole kind of food ecosystem as well. We were just in California and I was looking so forward to the, you know, about the Impossible Burger? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of like oh, yeah. it's, it's a vegetarian burger that kind of bleeds with this. Um, it doesn't actually bleed, but they use this um, like it substance called heme, which no pretty sure if it's really healthy or not, but I don't know. It's really fun. It's really cool. But like it's and now, you know, I think White Castle is serving vegan burgers, Hungry Jack's or Burger King is serving kind of vegan burgers. So it's like I think everyone's recognizing that this is a huge, you know, market. I think people want to, yeah, people want to kind of do the right thing. So it's like, yeah, this is I think in terms of moving towards kind of innovation, it seems to be right in line with the brand. So I support it. Our Friday lunch is going to be vegetarian. Well, you know, we do have a variety of different dietary needs and we're going for map, <laughs> but yeah, like, I don't know. I, I I would definitely kind of can. This is definitely kind of something I would kind of consider, especially if like yeah, for for Friday lunches. I don't know. How would you think? What would you think if I did? I'd be up for it. Have you ever been in a workplace with like any kind of weird rules or restrictions or anything? No, no, not really. No, nothing like this. Nothing outside of very work related things. You know, like things that were very strictly about the work that you were doing. But no, nothing that that branched outside of that and into sort of personal stuff. I, have you, Yana? I'm trying to think, no. No, I had one boss once who controlled the thermostat and kind of would only <laughs> keep it very cold because he thought if it was too warm, people would get too kind of, you know, too sleepy. sleepy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There you go. Wow. Anyway, <laughs> Laura, thank you very much for the link. You're we welcome. will put it in our show notes and move on from here. It's the second link in the vegetarian link sandwich that we're posting here at Open Tabs. And this week, I'm going back to my perennial favorite, Fasco, who ran this piece by Catherine Schwab on the future of retail a few weeks ago, specifically profiling Nike's new flagship store in New York City, which just opened in mid-November. Now, the article stakes... Now, the article states, the sneaker giant has an ambitious new goal, woo people who hate shopping IRL. And by the looks of what they've accomplished, it's definitely making a strong case for it. So look, a bit of an overview about this piece. It states that what Nike wants is to try to make shopping in a physical store as convenient as shopping online. Now, the six-foot shop designed by Callison RTKL covers 68,000 square feet. There are two customization studios, one-on-one shoe consultations, and the sneaker center, which has displays kind of showing how shoes are designed, prototyped, and built, very kind of immersive and visual experience. They also use the store as an endpoint for online shopping. So basically, you can reserve anything online, head into the shop, everything's going to be waiting for you in a locker. You can check it out on your phone, and then you're good to go. And this is called the Speed Shop, and it has its own separate entrance. The article also quotes John Hoke, Nike's chief design officer, talking about how the store will be a representation of the website and ultra responsive in terms of how stock is displayed and kind of carried. I don't want to repeat the article word for word here, but there's some other huge novelties here that are worth checking out, such as the different lighting settings in the change rooms, for example. You can get kind of three different modes that will kind of show off your clothes in different environments. And of course, if you're listening to this podcast on an enhanced player, we'll pop in some of these for you to hear. But most of the stuff that's really good is in the slideshow, which is also really very small and fast company i just need to say yeah the design is not good the design is not good their images need to be a lot bigger because there's some really cool images here so this is nike's second house of innovation the first is in shanghai and the company plans to open another in paris next year we also have a bit of a vested interest in this as we just did something very cool for the shanghai store that we'll be able to announce very soon look apart from that i thought given the nature of yana's work it was good timing as this is something in general i find really interesting as someone who runs a business with a physical component you know how do you actually get people to engage with your business in a physical sense. So for our gallery space, Lemington Drive, I ask this question a lot. 
everyone that's competing for your attention now and with everything that you can get delivered or on demand i think retailers are doing some of the most innovative work here in terms of creating these experiences that are drawing people in and i've always been entertained and inspired by some of these results look that said for all the talk of innovation technology here i actually find the things that are working here are really more kind of old school and human powered for example you go around the shop you find things you want it's all delivered to your dressing room and i think it's interesting but it's not really a new idea in many ways like if you've been shopping kind of in an upmarket boutique this is a very standard service well (laughs) so you know look at something like a museum as well an amazingly executed idea for such a storied brand as nike and a very clever move in terms of how they've inverted the kind of exit the gift shop model where you might kind of come into the shop and leave through the exhibition look there's definitely a huge backbone of tech here that couldn't be done for a museum or boutique store only for a company that as big as nike could really elevate these concepts and ideas to a whole new level so look i'm really interested to see how it works and whether it can actually scale to the point where it can be rolled out in less populated cities or whether other stores can license the tech but for me i'm still staying home (laughs) Uh, so look to that end i'd like to open this up a bit laura let's start with you the piece states that shopping in a physical store is soul-sucking you have to fight through the crowd to find the stuff you want if it's even there there's a line in the fitting room another line to check out by the time you leave you're disgruntled and wondering why you just didn't go online is this something that's true for you at all would the shop change the way that you think or shop in any way yeah, this is interesting because I feel like, you know, Yana, you're coming, you can come at this from like a very professional perspective. And Jeremy, you sort of run these physical spaces. I'm coming purely as a consumer. So I like my sort of thoughts on this are basic, but <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I have to say I am super into the store. Like I, I am all about online shopping, but as a five foot two woman with chest and hips, uh, shopping for clothes online, is it's pretty much impossible. I I actually can't remember the last time I bought clothing online and it was actually successful. I I did it a lot when I was younger and slimmer. <laughs> but over the last few years, I mean, the only things that I buy online now are shoes, bags, makeup and tech. So I absolutely love the idea of blending that convenience of online shopping with the physical usefulness of shopping in a store. For me, one of the things I loved was the idea of like reserving online the clothes that I wanted to try on and then just heading to a locker in the store and that would all be in there. That's nuts and I love it. Checking out using my phone is a take it or leave it kind of thing. I don't mind interacting with a human if I'm in the store already, unless the lines are crazy long, which yes, this this is brilliant. I also love that on your phone that you can request various things to be sent to the fitting room. I was thinking about like the amount of times I have stood awkwardly half-dressed, sort of head out of the behind the curtain, trying to get the attention of some overworked shop assistant to try and ask for a different size in something. And I always feel guilty about it because they're so busy. And so yeah, that was a huge selling point for me. And there are a lot of other features that they've included that I think are kind of novelty and like, probably after you visited the store for the first time you wouldn't really care again but admittedly I still find that stuff kind of impressive and it would make me want to visit the store but yes it's those core things like the lockers the quick checkout setting stuff to the fitting rooms that all really hooks me in I I would love to see this kind of stuff across more retailers but yeah as you said whether anyone you know that's not Nike would have the capital to actually sort of invest in stuff like this and put these principles into practice I mean who knows at least for now I don't know Yana, you've done some really impressive work in the placemaking game all over the world. How do you approach and react to what Nike is doing here? And we didn't even get to some of the more problematic aspects of the piece, such as location tracking, data harvesting. But putting uh, that whole thing aside, I'm really curious to hear a more critical take on what on this kind of if, if you have one or not. Oh, a couple of thoughts. <laughs> I'm with Lara. I really like shopping in physical stores. Mm. Same thing. I don't have perfect proportions I need to try things on but then there's also stuff that you just need to touch first like think about Ikea right you go on the website you read the catalog (laughs) everything looks amazing and so cheap and then you go to the shop and everything's made of the flimsiest plastic and it's It's obviously going to fall apart that uh, that wood vinyl-y thing that everything all the furniture is covered with I see it in the catalog and I'm like oh my god look at this beautiful I don't know uh, bedside table yeah and then I go in there and I'm like oh it's that like laminate Oh, yeah. It's like living in office works. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I don't think that we're going to be seeing the the end of physical retail at all. But I think it's going to become more and more of a boutique experience like with Nike, but also just with people who live closer to city centers and stuff like that. And a lot of the kind of mid-range shops will disappear in their physical incarnation, like tool shops or tech shops, Mm. probably all the stuff where you don't actually need to try it on or you don't need to touch it it's all the same i mean supermarkets might disappear before something like a sneaker store that's it (laughs) loved the idea but reading this article to me had a very similar emotional arc to what happens sometimes when i'm trying to install a new app (laughs) 
So, you know, you start off with this app is going to change your life. Your life's going to be so much better, so much more convenient. You're like, yep, I'm installing this. Oh, it's asking for my name. Oh, it's asking for my email. Oh, it's asking to track my location. Oh, it's asking to <laughs> take control of my camera. Oh, it's asking for all my contacts. And by the end of it, you're like, oh, I don't think I needed that much. <laughs> that was really the, the deal breaker for me, the data that is involved in this sort of stuff. Because when companies of the size of Nike create these incredible immersive experiences and you know they just need you to download this app for everything to work and the app is just actually going to have access to your entire life until you die (laughs) that's where it becomes really really tricky so I'm coming at this from maybe a, a bit more informed perspective because one of my best friends is actually doing a PhD in data governance, which used to be a really niche topic that no one cared about. It was about like your Medicare file. Mm. And then 2016 happened and Cambridge Analytica happened and now he's advising government and he's like 24 <laughs> years old. And just, wow, he really went into the right. <laughs> yeah, he really chose his yeah. niche. Yeah, 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 the right time. But so he, you know, he has a really good kind of overview of this and like lectures around the world and I often watch his lectures and stuff like that. And he says, you know, the problem with data is that everything, every single piece of information that you give about yourself can be matched with another set that's usually, you know, in Facebook because Facebook is very lax with how it treats your data. And so everything is personal data. Everything can be used to identify you. And once it's there, it's really hard to get it back. And he's advice is just don't give anything out never and i think this sort of stuff that nike is doing is probably likely to not be legal in a few years time like there'll be laws against it just because Mm. it's so intrusive and it's so hard to um take it back once it happens yes i think we actually will be seeing the end of this kind of commercialization of personal data. Do you think there are elements in the store, though, that just as a space, say, if they could do it without the data that are interesting or that are we might be seeing more of? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's some really interesting stuff that happens with this sort of user tracking. So there's a lot of work that's being done uh, at the University of Southern California and also in Sweden to track how buildings perform in terms of their environmental energy and so on performance. So they'll, for example, track users, as in people working in the building, to see who's cold and who's warm so that they can really kind of micromanage the aircon. Wow. Taking us back to the (laughs) previous topic. Or, for example, to see how really kind of green buildings perform. There's a really interesting research in Sweden that's uh, discovered that when you build a really, really good green building, 8% of your savings will come from your lower energy bill, but 88% will come from uh, staff retention and increased staff well-being. Wow. So actually the reason why you'd want to invest in a really good building is because people are happy because they feel that their values are, you know, being reflected in their workplace, Mm. but also because they're just much nicer buildings to spend time in. People get less sick, that sort of stuff. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, this is just always the, there's a huge trade-off here in terms of, yeah, convenience and being happy and what the darker side of that is. And this article does mention that like, oh yeah, like after I got installed the app, the location tracking feature just was turned on and never turned itself off. And they were like, whoops, there's a bit of a bug there. And I think as we really realize with everything, especially that's happened with Facebook the last few weeks, it's like, there's just no room to be ignorant of those things anymore. And it's just so easy to, to mess up. And I think the intentions of what they're trying to do are good in terms of, yeah, it'd be great to follow you around the store and kind of know when you're looking at something to automatically kind of have it there as well. But then it's, uh, yeah, there's, there's, and there's the flip Is side that of that. convenience yeah. worth, yeah. And I think everyone's kind of asking that, that question now at the moment. And I, I know like, yeah, like, it's like, it's like with Facebook as well, it's like, oh, where else am I going to communicate with my ice hockey team now? It's like, you know. <laughs> not writing letters, Jeremy. <laughs> Yana, this also reminds me of a piece we spoke about a few episodes ago. I'm not sure if you heard it. It was about these amazing stores in the 70s called, um, the, were they called Best? Best, yeah. yeah. You know, these architectural innovations, like these insanely crazy stores, like big box stores, but like, you know, these they were using architectural innovations to kind of drive traffic, almost like kind of going to this big kind of sculpture. Um, as someone who kind of, you know, really has their eyes on a lot of, you know, emerging property development and kind of buildings and everything kind of happening. Are there any kind of other examples of brands or developers that come to mind that have been innovating in a retail space that we can perhaps point our audience in the direction of? Well, nothing more positive than the Gruen effect, which is probably not a good example. You know the Gruen effect. Not the TV show. Well, you know what that refers to, right? Yes. So, yeah. Maybe just explain So, Victor Gruen was an architect of malls. He invented the mm-hmm. shopping mall architecture and he was the person who realized that when you create a space that is fully symmetrical and doesn't have uh, good access to natural light, so fundamentally is a disorienting space, people forget their purpose. 
people walk into this space and forget what they're there for and shop more because they're just going around in circles. That's literally what the Gruen Effect stands for. And it's a very significant mm. architectural discovery, but I don't know that it's that positive. So do you find that developers or brands are kind of moving away from that or are people still trying to de- purposely put that into their buildings? Oh, yeah, very much. I mean, the shopping mall is dying and we're seeing a lot of innovation in trying to create meaningful spaces like the Nike store, which is actually a really good example of what is happening sort of at the the top end of retail architecture. It's not really my speciality. Mm. I'm more into public spaces and housing. But we're really it's it's really a very active, very dynamic sector right now. I think it's definitely going to get more regulated in the future. But in the next few years before that happens, we'll see a lot of really interesting things emerge. Is that kind of paradigm still the same, though, in terms of especially with developers that it always has to be retail, has to kind of support the housing or has to kind of be there in kind of development in that way? Or like, do you kind of see retail being kind of broken off from the model of new developments at the moment? We're seeing a lot of mixed spaces these days where, you know, retail is becoming a lot less focused on making people buy things quickly and leave. There's a lot more leisure spaces being created within them. And within housing developments, we see a lot more purchasing sort of opportunities. And that's probably going to continue because that's how people live. Mm. You know, we don't live kind of one thing at a time sort of lives. Shops are becoming sort of showrooms more than anything now, aren't they? Because people acknowledge that people are going to buy online later, but it's becoming a space to sort of test things out. But yeah, then these larger developments, though, they're kind of like little mini cities in themselves where the the retail there is just there to kind of serve the people that live in the building as well. Yeah, there's also that that's happening. And you see, you know, uh, apartment buildings where you have a concierge service, you've got a childcare or a daycare service, you've got the cafe, you know, you've got dry cleaning, you can drop things off and pick things up and that sort of stuff. And that's really good. It's positive. Like we should be moving towards that model of actually understanding what convenience actually consists of. I'm really particularly interested in the notion of using tech to really evaluate buildings and how they're used because that actually happens incredibly rarely like you would think Mm. that once you've spent 10 million dollars on a building you'll be interested to know how it performs but it actually never happens (laughs) (laughs) and just having some sort of understanding of what parts of the building are more successful or less successful where do people hang out do people really like that feature garden that you put on the second floor that actually (laughs) never gets any sunlight I well, think that's I think- a good point. Like we, one of the things that we have mentioned before, I think, and that we really enjoyed when we were building this office, part of the process with Nest Architects was um, when they were sort of analyzing, okay, how will we use the space? How many people will be in what areas and blah, blah. And it was fascinating. It was so like, it was sort of revelationary for us because we hadn't really thought about it like that. And it, a lot of that thought went into how we built the, you know, built the office and it's been wonderfully successful. But yeah, we haven't either sort of reflected since on like, you know, all of those little individual decisions, which have worked the best, which haven't worked so well. It would be an interesting process. Mm, Very much so. Laura, I just have one last question for you. Mm -hmm. How's your day been? Good. (laughs) I was making a joke. It was a retail joke. You didn't get Uh, it. Oh yeah, I lost it. I was like, (laughs) I don't know. It's like 11. I haven't done that much yet. I was really trying to wrap this one up in a funny way, but it didn't really work. So I'm just going to end it there. Thank you very much for your feedback. We'll keep moving on from there. Our final link of the week comes from our special guest, Yana. Yana, before we get into what you have brought to us this week, I'd like to ask everybody who comes on the show, kind of what is your, what are your internet habits? Where do you kind of like to find your links? Are you a Twitter person? Are you a Facebook person? Or, you know, where, where does it come from? What is your internet hygiene? I use RSS. Ah, yes, there we go. Finally, no one ever, no, no one ever, is ever I, in I, our camp. I've taken it out of my whole little intro blurb. What's your RSS reader of choice? Feedly. Ooh, controversial. How is it controversial? No, no, the it's best. Not, yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever. <laughs> yeah. I'm on Feedly as well. Don't worry. Oh, that's fantastic. So every January, I edit my Feedly. I think about what I want to think about in the year. You're a woman I after my own heart. Change my categories, <laughs> and then it's really nice. I've noticed that it's really important for my overall well-being that mm-hmm. I don't just get any crappy news. I, yeah, hugely. I can imagine. I, well, like the one of the worst things for me has been like now I, I can't stop using the like Apple News. Like when I swipe across and I see all the things and it's never anything I want to know about, but I read. I still about, don't understand. Yeah. Why RSS hasn't been bigger. Oh God. I love RSS. But yeah, on my phone always, I just get the stupid Apple News thing and it's just like cricket 
scores and like someone who drove off a cliff and like Carl Stefanovic's wedding. And I, don't, I just don't care about these things, but I can't help reading them. But yes, RSS saves us all. Well, I'm excited about this piece because this is something that's come up on a few of my Slack groups. So tell us a bit about this piece from Curb that is called Building Houses That Grow With Us. All right. So this article was written by Kate Wagner. Kate Wagner is a blogger and the author of my favorite thing on the internet called McMansion Health. (laughs) Yes. The best. (laughs) She is in her professional life. She's an acoustics engineer. She's currently Mm -hmm. doing a PhD at Johns Hopkins University. So pretty smart lady. But McMansion Health is the blog where she skewers the world's ugliest houses. I think that's the byline where she points out with a lot of sass and quite a lot of knowledge what makes McMansions really bad as investments, as homes, or just as a, as architecture. And it's hilarious, but it's also very astute. Like it's very clever and insightful, but it's so funny. So in the last few years, she's become really quite prominent as an architecture critic at large. So she's been writing a lot for places like 99% Invisible and Curb, and I really enjoy her columns. And recently she's written one called Building Houses That Grow With Us, where she looks at the excessive number of rooms and features that are found in American homes, particularly McMansions, but not just. The article has a lot going for it, but I think in particular what I found really uh, lovely was that she opens with uh, Stuart Brand and a quote from his uh, very important book called How Buildings Learn, which is about how architecture ages. And if this, I know that this is not exactly in your line of work because you work with illustration, but if there is one thing that you can take away from this, it's Stuart Brand saying, never try to solve a 10-minute problem with a 100-year solution. Hmm. So Stuart Ryan talks a lot about how, you know, when you look at a building, it's got different layers and they have a different sort of age. There's the site, there's the external walls, there's internal walls, there's the services, there's the space plan, and then there's stuff, meaning furniture. And it's much easier to move your furniture around than it is to change your external walls. And Lord help you if you try to change your lot boundaries on your house, because it's <laughs> never going to happen. And a house that works well is a house that can adapt to different phases of your life without you needing to build a new room for every single activity that you do. So one thing that Kate has often written about that I found very compelling is this notion that today we're designing our homes not for ourselves, but primarily for other people. So for the future buyers of our home to pay more money or for our occasional visitors because we want to impress them with high ceilings in the formal lounge or for the children that we're yet to have or for our future selves who will have more children and more money and more time to enjoy these houses. As people who don't work in these fields but are creatives and designers, I wanted to ask if you found this to be a relatable notion. Like what are your aspirations for your home? Mm, That's such an interesting question because, I mean, Jeremy and I will come (laughs) at it from such different perspectives because the concept of buying a house, much less building one, is so foreign to me. I am 25 and I live in Melbourne. And I mean, it's it's so far away in the probably non-existent distance <laughs> that I, I find it a little hard to relate, you know. But yeah, I mean, it was a really interesting read and definitely one that I wouldn't have come across unless you brought it to us. So I'm really grateful. I felt that it applied to a kind of small subsection of home buyers or builders. Like I think that there's definitely there's definitely truth in that people are building houses with the kind of things in mind that you were saying. But I also felt like it's only the people with the money to think like that are the ones doing that. Everyone else buys what they can and, and then they modify their lives and their homes to whatever extent possible to fit within the constraints of the property they were able to afford. But there were some lines that I really enjoyed. I'd like to pull out one is sort of early on. She says, the irony of the open concept is that the only thing about about it that can be easily and inexpensively changed is the position of stuff. Flexibility for one layer, but immobility for every other is still mistakenly perceived and marketed as flexibility for all, which I thought was a fascinating concept. And then the other quote I enjoyed at first was the following. So she said, traditionally houses have been built to satisfy the basic needs of a family with the understanding that if those needs expand beyond what is provided, the house can be added onto or remodeled. However, houses increasingly are overbuilt, built for what if instead of what is. What if we have a party and our house gets too crowded? What if we buy another car? 
what if we run out of room for craft supplies? Instead of building houses that can be adapted to change in our lives, making them flexible, we attempt to build our houses to satisfy any number of possible futures that may come along. And I really, I really enjoyed that. But then towards the end, she talks about what a truly flexible house should be, sort of stating things like a flexible house is one where your children can easily get around when they're young and where you can easily get around when you're old. A flexible house enables an easy transition from childhood bedroom to home office as the eldest child goes off to college. A flexible house enables you to build an addition, enclose a screened porch, create an income property in the basement, et cetera, et cetera, which to me feels exactly like what she was criticizing, building a house with all sorts of future possibilities in mind. And I might just be like miss interpreting what she's saying because I, I guess that's where I got stuck was like it was like build for what you have now but then also build flexibility into it which is the issue that people you know that people are building houses with what ifs in mind so that's where I got a bit like I got a bit confused because like yeah well I think I one of the most striking actual physical examples of this is I don't know if you're familiar with this it was speaking 99% invisible there's an episode in 2016 called half a house which goes about these houses in uh, I think they're in Chile and literally what they do is you you get half a house so it's a full house and only half of it's been built and then the other half of it you literally kind of you know build to it like you know as you kind of need it and so yeah that can take Whoa. all those kind of things into effect it's amazing so i think that's the most kind of obvious representation of that fact but i think yeah just like you were saying before about you know how we kind of design our office i think this is just one thing you know for me this is a tricky thing because i think it's it's only it is until i started working with architects like formally that i realized like how little i knew and how like so much of my own you know i was bringing my graphic design thinking and kind of short-term kind of advertising thinking to physical spaces, which is all about band-aids, you know? Mm. And I think a lot of what we've been talking about visually in terms of all these kind of brands, you know, how they're kind of using illustration or how, like, you know, things are so kind of homogenous and kind of some ways come from that kind of same kind of thinking and also just come from this really this thing where people are just risky or people are risk averse, actually kind of hire professionals to do what they're actually good at and people thinking they can do anything. And I think, yeah, once you have your own house, you think you can kind of do it all. But at the same time, I appreciate, yeah, there's a lot of privilege in that statement because, well, yeah, not everyone can afford, you know, to do those kind of things. And that's kind of takes me even back to a further thing when it comes to prefabricated houses or architects like, um, you know, who would kind of design these prefabricated houses with these things, with kind of their thinking and kind of put it out there. But again, it's not even with that architectural thinking, it's not kind of custom to that person or kind of, you know, their life whatsoever. So I think in general, like what I've found like in the last 10 years is that there's two things that are kind of happening that are problematic because they're not kind of converging, which is like there's an increase in appreciation for design, but then there's an also an increase like just from the kind of general public and kind of what it is, but then there's an increase in kind of this facsimile of what design actually is. And those things kind of aren't meeting kind of in that same way. But I think it's kind of, they're eventually kind of coming a bit more kind of slowly together. So I think people kind of will have the tools or will have kind of access to professionals to to actually engage in this kind of process. But right now, that's what's not happening. And that's really what... interesting points. I just want to say I'm so sorry for the listeners that they don't get to enjoy your hand gestures <laughs> as you talk, because there's beautiful stuff going on. We're going to have to film you at some point and put it in the enhanced version of the podcast. It's just me going like this, looking like an air traffic controller. I, I, well, that traffic is being controlled. <laughs> Yana, I'm so interested to hear from you, like in your professional perspective, I guess, on like what that because you do focus so much on housing, mm. um, what that line is between flexibility and overthinking. Yeah. So this is this relates to what you were saying before, like what what is one, what is the other? The difference between like over preparedness and resilience is really important to understand when you're designing anything, mm. you know, whether that be your home or your workspace or your life or, mm. you know, a public transport system. So resilience means that you've created a system that can respond to a a number of different categories of possible situations of which half will never happen. Whereas overpreparedness means that you've got, you've designed your solution and now you're waiting for the problem to happen. Mm. And to understand what which is which, you really need to understand how likely your problem is to occur. And this is why you should never respond to a 10-minute problem with a 100-year solution yes. because then all the other 10-minute problems that will happen over the next 100 years, you really have no capacity to respond to because you've over-prepared for one thing. And this is why she, you know, she is a big fan of just ordinary buildings and very ordinary spaces, you know, like a room with four walls that is rectangular and has a window. Mm, because it can be many things. Because, yeah, it can be a bedroom, it can be a little living room, it can be a study space, it can be anything. Whereas if you over-design a room to be a really fantastic, I don't know, ballroom, because yeah. you're going to be a CEO in the future, what do you do with that room until the ball 
is on. Yeah, and after. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> totally. Yeah, I guess that that's very true. What she's getting at is being realistic about those future possibilities. Which I think but, is hard. I think it's really yeah. hard for people, particularly when you're buying a house, to be realistic about what your life is going to be like. We tend to get very aspirational when we're shopping for stuff for ourselves. Mm. Completely. I mean, yeah, everyone wants to believe that they're going to have the well, require a ballroom or something of a less of an equivalent extent. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's thinking about that. Yeah, you will most likely get old and need a house that's easy to navigate. But and, and you know, you'll most likely have a recreational or want to have a recreational space where you could watch TV or play board games, or whatever. But and those activities may change over time. But you won't always want a space that's specifically designed to be a home cinema or, you know. This actually brings me to something else that I wanted to ask you guys about, which is the kind of rise of the single purpose design or single purpose objects. So I was born in a socialist country. I went to Portugal when I was 16 and I remember encountering the vegetable peeler for the first time. <laughs> what and a moment. This was the first time in my life that I saw an object that had only one purpose. Mm. We just use a knife, like a little knife. And I just thought, wow, how interesting. Like someone has actually put a lot of design thinking into creating this thing that can only be used to peel Well, the vegetables. kitchen's rife with it, isn't it? I mean, lots of kitchen utensils are designed for one very, very specific purpose that really you can do with a knife. <laughs> Pretty much. And I really love Muji, the brand, because mm. Muji is full of these objects that are just a thing. Like, you know, they'll be selling cotton cloths. <laughs> and you figure out whether you want it to be a napkin or whether you want it to be a tea towel. And I really like that. I like this <laughs> idea of having a thing where I can decide how to use it because mm. it has some really generic qualities like, you know, it absorbs moisture, mm. you know, or it's, it holds water. How do you feel about that? I mean, that's marketing, isn't it? That's a ploy to get you to buy more things is convincing you that you have a problem that you don't have, you know, that you need, you need a spiralizer or you need a, you know, because that's the only thing that could solve it or do it the, sort of the best way. Whereas you could really get by with, with less. Jeremy? I don't know. I mean, yeah, sometimes I walk into that. I had, I have that kind of creative block where like, I always need people to tell me what to do. I'm actually very, not very creative. So it's like when I walk into Muche and I see all these things, I'm like, I don't know what to do with these things. And I, I, it's like, if someone doesn't tell me, I'm going to walk out. But I think it's, it's definitely something we're seeing more in graphic design, for example, this whole idea of kind of flexible identities. And, you know, we talked the other day about custom typefaces and how, you know, there's more kind of flexible type, like, you know, dynamic typefaces that can be kind of coded to do all these kind of different things. And I kind of feel it's kind of, or, you know, especially how different identities are using motion now and kind of using generative effects to kind of do random things and program in all this kind of randomness and stuff. And I kind of think, oh, it's a bit overwhelming. What just happened to a really simple identity? Why does everything have to be so flexible now? Mm -hmm. And I think it's great because, yeah, people kind of want to be stimulated and they want those kind of, you know, challenges there. I don't think that's kind of going away anytime soon, but I definitely kind of think this idea of flexibility is kind of something that is very of the moment right now. And I'm, I'm not sure what it means. Well, it's funny as well, because you can look at simplicity in both ways. Simple can be something that has one purpose and simple can be something that is so simple that it can be used for all sorts of different things. And depending on which side of the coin you're sort of arguing for, you you, you can really, yeah, look at it in both ways. So now my head hurts. Yeah, look, it's a really, um, <laughs> it's an amazing piece. And I think, yeah, yeah one of the things read. on the podcast that I love is, is, and one of the things I love about RSS as well is bringing in kind of different disciplines. And I've always thought that that architecture and urban design and all those things have so much to offer to kind of graphic design and illustration or any kind of visual mediums. The, the, the parallels are just are amazing. So if you're listening to this, if you're an illustrator or if you're another kind of visual artist and haven't kind of heard me bang on enough about how much I love architecture and how relevant it is, yeah, this is a great piece to kind of maybe get started with that. So thank you very much, Anna, for bringing that to the show. Thank you. It is time for drum roll, please. You got to help us with the drum roll. There we go. <laughs> Pitter patter. Pitter patter, tiny fingers. The brilliantly named thumbs up, thumbs down, shaka. The time we dedicate each week to get the good, the bad, the great, and the completely petty off our chest. Laura, get us started as you do every week. What do you got for us? Oh, I promised I promised Mel in the office here that I would dedicate my, my thumbs down to her. A absolutely tragic occurrence this week. She went to a really fancy pizza place and got a really, really delicious pizza. And then she drove off with it on the roof of the car. <laughs> Look, I mean, she's recovering. She's doing well. Thank you, everyone, for your concerns, for your letters of of, <laughs> of condolences. But um, yeah, I just thought what it, I wanted to give a warning out there for everyone: just check the roof before you leave the pizza place. Secure your load. Secure your load, Jeremy. What about you? 
Okay, I have an app that I'm going to recommend, which is called Progress Bar, the easiest $7.99 I've ever spent. Even though I can never, I never buy apps, but I saw this and I was like, I have to have it. And basically what it is, it's a battery meter for your life that sticks in your menu bar. And so basically you enter in kind of your birthday and then you have to enter in when you think you're going to die. And it tells, oh you, tells you how much kind of life you have left. So this actually led me down a real kind of long rabbit hole trying to find my death date, which I had to do through lots of kind of insurance companies. You company. know that you can't, Dude, you, you will you cannot predict when you're gonna die, Jeremy. Says who? Me. Anyway, Science. I'm giving I'm giving myself <laughs> statistics. A, a leisurely eighty-five. And yeah, here I, I have about um I've got, you know, forty-four percent left here in my menu bar. So it's a That's great little memento mori. I highly recommend this app. It's very, very cleverly done. So yeah, a big You paid uh, eight bucks to have someone like multiply and amplify your anxiety. Yeah, it's better than me doing it myself. So, yeah, why not? <laughs> Yana, what about you? Thumbs that up, thumbs down. Fantastic. Shocker. I, I won that app. <laughs> no. Oh, God. All right. So mine's a bit of a thumbs up and thumbs down at the same time. So I've just read that the Italian company Bialetti might be going under. Bialetti is the company that makes the original mocha, the Italian stovetop espresso maker, mm. coffee machine, what we call a uh, cafetiera. And the uh, demise is due to two factors of which both are crappy. One is that people in Italy really like Nespresso pods. What? <laughs> what? In yeah. Italy? This is shocking. Yeah. And two, which is more complicated, is that people outside Italy really like having home espresso machines, mm. which are also very electricity intensive, take forever to warm up. You can't get a coffee done quickly and the coffee is not that great. So I'm about to go buy all the Bialetti mocha <laughs> that I can find on Sydney Road to prepare for this Armageddon. But I highly recommend everyone does the same. Mocha is really under rated as a coffee maker it's really quick it's cheap anyone can do it the coffee is great it's so good for home and it costs 20 bucks amazing nice. it's in there yana thank you so much for coming by where can people find more about you the amazing things that you do etc online oh my god well there is assemblepapers.com.au which is the magazine that i edit that bothers itself with small footprint living across multiple categories and what else? There's also audio stage at guerrillasemiotics.com, which is a podcast that I make with Bethany Atkinson Quinton, which is basically a series of very long, quite involved conversations <laughs> with artists uh, around the world, but mainly in Melbourne. And do you do any personal socials that you want to share at all? Nah. None of it. Nah. Excellent. <laughs> Got off everything. Okay. Thank you so much. I'm Jeremy Wartzman. She's Laura Chan Baker, and this has been Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. Our theme music is by Totally Unrelated to Our Company, Melbourne-based musician Jackie Winter. You can check out his stuff on soundcloud.com slash Jackie Winter. If you want more JWGYTP, archives of all of our shows and the links we've covered can be found at JackieWinter.GivesYouThe.biz. To receive all the links we talk about in the show each week in one neat little package, you can sign up to our podcast-specific newsletter at tinyletter.com slash Jackie Winter. You can also find us mostly on Instagram at Jackie Winter. That's Jackie with a Y in Winter Like the Season. And hit us up with any recommendations, feedback, etc. at podcast at JackieWinter.com. If you love what you hear, subscribe, rate, leave us a review on iTunes. And you can also get a Spotify Stitcher as well as directly from our website at JackieWinter.GiveYouThe.biz. And remember, this is an enhanced podcast. If you listen to this using Pocket Cast, Overcast, Castro, or Apple Podcast Player, you'll be able to see the links to the articles as we're talking about them, as well as other visual content. And if you work for an ad agency or design studio or are interested in our live extended version of the show called Open Tabs, be sure to check us out at opentabs.rodeo for more info. Thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye bye. Hang me upside down. Me out. Yana is the editor of Assemble Papers, a Melbourne based music. <laughs> Yana. <laughs> this happens a lot in the intro. Oh, yeah. <laughs>